0: You're tuned in You're t- 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 to Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Jared Hindmarsh, this week we delve into a story from World War II, a World War II desert story. And that was one of the arenas in which New Zealanders, a lot of New Zealanders, fought. This is the heroic story of Colonel Ronald Joseph Moore
1: of the New Zealand
0: Expeditionary Force. Jared.
1: Yeah, Corporal Ronald Joseph Moore. He was also known as Skin by his nickname Skin Moore. Uh, he was a trooper at number 1248 in the 2nd New Zealand Divisional Cavalry, and he served with the New Zealand Expeditionary Force in Egypt from 1940 through into 1941 and 42, And he earned incredible, uh, critical acclaim for... Uh, What became known as Moore's March, named after him, this remarkable story of endurance, abandoned in the desert, wounded, he made his way out, and it was seen by the army as one of the most remarkable feats. It really was, with hardly any water, three mates, they all sort of separated slowly, and But uh, he was really the hero of this. He was just a a farmhand, you know, from Thai Happy, quite a remarkable man. And one of those chaps that had incredible skills, all-round skills. And he was picked out, really, to go into the long-range desert group, the LRDG, it was called, And uh, this was a sort of specialist group. Their job was to disrupt the German oil supply from North Africa, of course, because if anything would disrupt the German advance in Europe, it would be strangling their supply of oil coming from North Africa. Moore became the unintentional hero of what became known as Moore's March through the Western Desert, and they were survivors of this long range desert group. I'll go into the story shortly, but Moore led three other soldiers on a 10-day march, 336 kilometers. thats um, about 209 mile, trek, virtually no food, no water. and few environments of course are as hostile. Anywhere in the world than this desert region, Graham, it's a furnace by day, it goes up to 50 and even 60 degrees, total freezing by night, and few people have survived there for long, particularly when injured or without food and with precious little water. I think this area in Libya holds, or
0: at least held for a long time, the highest temperature recorded on Earth.
1: Yeah, it does. It stretches from the Nile right through Egypt into Libya, and known as the Western Desert or parts of it's the Egyptian Sand Desert. I've actually driven through it on a press trip. Once we had to be, we had to be uh, chaperoned by uh, Egyptian military, and we had bodyguards. But man, what an exceptional place! What oh, were you I doing was- there? visiting the New Zealand um, cemetery at Al Alamein. Oh, wow. And uh, and then they took us across the desert with a few diversions right through to Alexandria. Oh, it was a spectacular trip. And I always remember this little place in the desert we came to, it was little dodgem cars in the middle of nowhere. We couldn't even find anyone to give a ride. But uh, the most bizarre sort of place to have served there would be, I just think, oh, my God, it would be one of the worst places. But in 1940, the Allies, including the New Zealand Expeditionary Force, they were just barely clinging to Egypt. It was the gateway to those German oil fields further east. And Italy had joined the war on the side of Germany, of course, by this time, and they had bases deep in the desert. Now, this was both in the Sudan and also in Libya and it was vital that the Allies knew what the Italians in particular were planning, because whatever they were doing had some link-up to the German advance there, and so they thought, well, if we could keep a tab on these Italians and even harass them or anything, then perhaps we could disrupt that oil supply. Well, out of this grew the long-range desert group, and they were patrols which roamed the desert by trucks, uh, thousands of kilometres behind enemy lines. It was a very brazen act of these guys, actually. And interestingly, they were often crewed by New Zealanders, Graham, because these guys from the Expeditionary Force were picked out because they were so good at doing things. Many of them had rural backgrounds, just like Moore, They were good with explosives. They used them on their farms. They could build things. They were good with rifles. They were good with horses. They were just made for the job. It's
0: a pretty dangerous task, isn't it? You don't have to do much of an imagine to think of how dangerous that must have been behind enemy lines. And you don't have platoons to the right of you or the left of you. You've just got desert and road.
1: Yeah, exactly. And of course, the air is open above you, and you're in full sight of any aerial surveillance. And, um, you know, these patrols were totally equipped to harass, sabotage, and gain intelligence. That was their brief, basically, a wide brief. But, you know, they risked death from enemy aircraft. The Italians had quite a little fleet of aeroplane spotter planes that were just... Crisscrossing the desert at all the times, so while at ground level, enemy patrols were often encountered, and these were terrible little skirmishes where sometimes hardly anyone got out alive. But as you get more into Libya, there are these kind of everything from these wadis, which are these ravines or watercourses that only have water in them for a short time of the year, or mountainous little outcrops and and scrub, thorny scrub. There were places to hide and everything, but It was the desert, and and there was always the possibility of a very slow death from starvation or thirst if things went wrong. Because there was no, virtually no help available. But anyway, they had Christmas 1940 in the camp, and on Boxing Day, they were all prepared to go. Boxing Day 1940, two patrols of the Long Range Desert Group left their base in Cairo, and they brief, the wastes of the Libyan desert. And among the 70 men involved in this little caravan, if you like, was Corporal Ron Moore. And ahead of them was just a world of vast sand seas and rocky ridges and stony sort of plains and little vegetation and virtually no water. So effectively, they were a reconnaissance team. Yeah, reconnaissance, but also to engage the enemy where possible, and uh, they were well armed as well with explosives, all sorts of things. Now, they actually had a mission. One of their missions was the destruction of an airfield at the Italian garrison town of Mazurk. Now, this was 1,600 kilometers away. Now, the Long Range Desert Group was led by an English officer, Major P.A. Clayton. Now, the 23 vehicles. For a start they were in relatively familiar territory. They followed the route to Andala and beyond stretched this vast Egyptian sand sea and they were soon manhandling their trucks across this wasteland. They were always shoveling and heaving and laying metal channels which they carried on top of their little trucks across the sand until they reached a big cairn. Now this was a sort of landmark, a sort of rocky landmark near the Libyan border with Egypt. Now from here it was firmer ground and they made good progress across a big desolate stony plain and then they encountered more sand but once again they dug and they heaved their way across the Calancho Sand Sea now under the scorching sun. So far they were totally undetected by enemy aircraft. They were going well, but anyway, ahead now was just totally unknown territory and all the available maps showed only the barest details and, and they were often grossly inaccurate, of course, and they relied on their borrowed, begged, and stolen compasses and theodolites and sun compasses for navigation, and they actually even used some techniques from the old camel drivers to find their way. Anyway, they arrived outside Mazurk on the 10th of January. They had been away about nearly two weeks at this stage. They still had been completely undetected. Now, The patrols just roared into this town and took it on the 11th of January totally by surprise and the Italian garrison surrendered. They had little trouble. It wasn't very well manned actually and they destroyed the airfield, blew up every little aircraft they could find and then they withdrew south towards Chad, the territory of Chad. Now this was controlled by the Free French at that stage, their allies. So... Now, on the way, they harassed other Italian garrisons and tried to inflict as much emotional turmoil on the enemy as they could and ended up resting back in Chad that night. After they uh, spent a couple of days there, the patrols headed again back into enemy territory to attack. So Chad
0: was under whose auspices at this time? How could they rest in Chad? Oh,
1: because Chad territory was controlled by the Free French at that time so allies they were. They always had them on their side. Then the patrols headed again into enemy territory to attack another Italian base at Kufra, the little town of Kufra. Now, uh, at this stage, the Italians were aware of this incredibly heavily armed patrols roaming somewhere in the desert. So Major Clayton knew now that they'd lost all element of surprise. He moved them cautiously forward along an old camel route. Now this was through a sort of wadi where they could be slightly out of sight. Now on the last day of January they were only 100 kilometres from Kufra, now risking an attack from the air of course, but after stopping for a break at a small hut at Sara, Clayton left one patrol in reserve and pushed on with 11 trucks. Now Corporal Moore was in a vehicle that had been named Te Aroha. Now, he must have named that because that's where he was born, actually. Near a mountainous outcrop called Jebel Serif, Clayton decided that they should lie low until dark and give the order to disperse the trucks around the rocky wadi. Now, this was... Afterwards, but it was too late. His plan was too late. Within minutes, an Italian patrol now, this was backed up by three aircraft they just fell on the group in one huge attack. And in the evening, Major Clayton and three of his vehicles were captured, and two more trucks were destroyed by machine gun and cannon fire. And this was the Battle of Kufra. Without the protection of air support, the patrol second-in-command withdrew the six surviving trucks and inflicting heavy damage on the Italians as they went. You know, this is one of the most preserved battlefield scenes still in existence, I think from the Desert Drive, but all the vehicles, the Italian vehicles and equipment, still there just sitting in the desert. It's uh, supposed to be quite remarkable, but anyway... Corporal Moore was left behind, and when the Italians attacked, he was driving to and it was raked by enemy fire, and it started to burn. It caught fire. Now, Moore himself was shot through the foot, and the bullet penetrated the outside edge of his foot and came through the sole of his foot. You can imagine how painful that was. Yeah, not, not a good afternoon. No. Now, a corporal operating the machine gun from the truck was killed, and the four survivors bailed out of the truck safely, crawling to safety. They raced to nearby rocks to find cover, and from amongst all the shrapnel flying around, they stayed hidden, and they couldn't believe their eyes when the rest of the long-range desert group, their comrades, retreated. They realised that they'd been left behind, maybe presumed killed, but anyway, and they also watched with amazement as the Italians did the same with their prisoners. Now, one of these prisoners was Major Clayton. They'd captured the commander of the Long Range Desert group. So, Moore was now left with three companions. There were two British guardsmen, Easton and Winchester, and an ordnance trooper named Teague. Now, They all withdrew to a nearby hill. Are they all New Zealanders? No, they're not. They're English, actually. Okay. Yep. Moore's the only Kiwi in that bunch, and he withdrew to a nearby hill and they hid there throughout the night. By morning, they were certain the Italians had gone. They waited, and uh, there was no activity. The four survivors they searched through all the burnt out trucks for equipment, food clothing, and they found nothing except a partly filled can of water. Everything else had been destroyed. All right, not a fabulous position to be in, in
0: the middle of one of the hottest deserts on the earth, which just happened to be a major battlefield for a lot of New Zealanders, especially the New Zealand Expeditionary Force. Outsiders with Gerard Hindmarsh will carry on with this incredible march of survival It is the story of Colonel Ronald Joseph Moore of the NZEF, 1940, around Christmas time, and the Battle of Kufra. Ah, Weekend variety, wireless. Outsiders with Gerard Hindmarsh. This week, the story of Colonel Ronald Joseph Moore and his companions. A reconnaissance team was given the job of going and finding out what the Italians were doing in the Desert War of World War II, 1940, and they've come under attack and seem to have been, well, very much left behind in the middle of a desert. And they've got a can of water and hundreds of miles of heat and desert all around them. What do they do, Jared?
1: Well, they went through all the litter of the battle. The little trucks all burnt out. Everything virtually had been destroyed. And as the sun rose high in the sky, they began to take stock of their situation, and it didn't look good. Three of them were injured. Now, Moore's foot wound was causing him extreme pain. barely could walk on it, stand up. Easton had been hit in the throat by a jagged piece of shrapnel, which had lodged in the back of his gullet. And Teague was suffering from an old internal injury. Now, only Winchester was unhurt. He was the only unwounded one out of the four. Now, they knew in order to survive, they needed water. But the nearest water that was available, and they knew this from their briefing, was at Kufra. Now, this was 110 kilometres to the north. But, of course, that meant facing Italians and a prisoner of war camp, definitely. Now, So
0: the Battle of Kufra is called the Battle of Kufra because it's the nearest settlement.
1: Yeah, the nearest settlement. Gotcha. That was 110 kilometres to the north. Now, if they were to avoid capture and survive, they had to walk 460 kilometres south to Tekro, was the nearest place that would be friendly. So that was basically towards Chad, and that was desert all the way now moore became the natural leader even though he was wounded he became the natural leader of this assorted group and he had no doubts in his mind which decision to make for him freedom was precious even if it meant dying along the way They all talked in depth about this. They all knew what they faced. They took stock. They had six litres of water amongst them, and that had to last 460 kilometres. They knew that their injuries would hamper progress, and their clothing was entirely inadequate. It's hard enough
0: imagining having to do that when you're feeling fit, let alone,
1: you know, it's not an unserious wound. No, that's right. And the worst part, of course, was that they knew that they were probably going to of through six litres of water amongst four men, one and a half litres each, to last 460 kilometres. I mean, it doesn't take much maths to work that one out. No. Graham, and 50 degree heat, they knew their injuries would hinder their progress, and their clothing was entirely inadequate, because when the patrol was attacked by the Italians, it was almost a surprise attack. They'd actually been caught almost with their pants down, Graeme, but but definitely without their boots and their hats on. Oh, no. So you can imagine, they were bare feet, and it was a common practice to gain comfort when on patrol under the scorching desert sun to take your boots off as soon as you rested. They just swelled up. And so all their protective clothing, including their blankets, had been destroyed in the trucks and... They knew that living at night would be a problem, and by day, they would, their flesh would just be roasted. So with the morning sun rising higher, they set out on that first day for Jebel uh, Sharif. Now, this is the big mountain massive that the battle was fought around. And they followed the truck tracks south where they'd come from. Now, each took a turn carrying their precious water. Hardly making any progress because of the injuries. Now, on that first day, they only managed to take a few sips of water each, rationing it. Later, an Italian plane passed over them, and they quickly hid under some bushes. But they reasoned that if the Italians had actually seen them, they would just think that they were doomed anyway and with no hope of
0: survival. No, no, wouldn't waste a bullet.
1: No. The thing that
0: really freaks me out no hat. Oh, I know. Can you imagine it? They must have fashioned something for their head. You'd just go mad.
1: Would they ever? Now, they'd spent the first night and they dozed in a shallow depression. They sort of huddled together against the freezing cold. It was went below freezing. And on the second day, they plodded on. Now, Moore had one handkerchief. The only thing he had, really, which he wrapped around his wounded foot. And Easton was in great pain from his throat wound. He could barely swallow. And was near collapse from the effects of this old injury he had now the third day under the blazing sun that brought a bonus they found in the sand a kilogram tin of plum duff oh. of plum jam which had probably dropped off one of their trap on the way north now. They divided it up and and just coughed it down, washing it down with a precious sip of water. And this was their first food in three days since the attack. Now, throughout the fourth day during the trek south, Teague was obviously very tired, but they managed to keep the party together. But they were moving now at a really slow pace, always helping each other. Now, Teague was the first to falter, and on the... Fifth day, he got quite snarky about it. He persuaded them to leave him because he was hindering their progress and jeopardising everyone's chance of reaching safety.
0: Oh, the Captain Oates approach. I'm going out, I may be some time.
1: Yeah, exactly, and reluctantly the other three men decided, OK, this is the best thing, we'll come back, we'll find help and come back and get you, was these last words, and they left him with his tiny share of water in an empty bottle that they'd found. Now, now this was absolutely tragic. It was not until his three comrades were out of sight that Teague discovered that the bottle contained a salty automotive substance that made this water totally undrinkable. Oh, like brake fluid or something? Yeah, something like that. They thought it was clean. But anyway, on the sixth day, now Moore, Eastern and Winchester, they struggled on through a sandstorm, a raging sandstorm towards the deserted village of Sara. Now, the swirling sand made it hard to follow the uh, truck tracks, but they managed to reach the village just before dark. Now, early in the war, the Italians had destroyed all the water supplies at this oasis to stop them being used by Allied patrols. The wells had been um, detonated and possibly poisoned. And they spent the night in a little ruined hut, bathing their aching feet in some engine oil, which was the only liquid they could find from a burnt-out vehicle. And it also provided fuel for a fire, which kept them warm throughout the night.
0: Oh, well, that would be our bonus.
1: Well, sort of.
0: A little bit of a bonus.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it gets worse, Graham. How
0: thirsty have you ever been?
1: Oh, look, I'd need several litres of water uh, in in probably half a day in any sort of environment like that. But to be thirsty is the horriblest thing in the world. Your whole mouth, your tongue swells up. You start to feel just delirious and horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, they resumed the trek on the seventh morning. They were almost halfway to Tekro, which lay 256 kilometres to the south. Now, over large stretches, the tracks of the truck wheels had disappeared, so they didn't know where actually they were going. They were just sort of navigating roughly by the sun now. Anyway, beyond Sarah, Teague had found the inner strength to struggle on to the ruined hut. Now, this is the man they'd left behind, and he was too exhausted and dehydrated to go any further, and he had one match that the others had left behind, and he lit a fire using the oil as fuel. So he was following them, if you like. Absolutely amazing that they were doing this on so little water. And the injuries. Yeah, the injuries. Now, further south on the eighth day, Easton was growing weaker and he kept lagging behind. They knew that if one of them didn't find help soon, they would all die. So Moore and Winchester decided to leave Easton with his tiny share of water, and they pushed south.
0: Oh, good God. So this is the eighth day.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, boy. Yeah. You can, you can live for about three without any water, but, you know, eight with a little bit, they're on the edge, aren't they?
1: Oh, totally.
0: Uh, I won't be the only one. Is anyone else imagining Alec Guinness in torn khaki shorts staggering around? Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> Feels
0: like that, doesn't it? It does. Oh boy. All right. Look, we'll take another break and when we return, this ongoing saga of amazing hardship and survival in the desert in wartime World War 2. It's the story of Moore's March named after Colonel Ronald Joseph Moore of the New Zealand Expeditionary Force.
2: But. Weekend Variety
1: Wireless.
0: Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. This week, Colonel Ronald Joseph Moore from the New Zealand Expeditionary Force. North Africa was a region uh, that a lot of New Zealanders served in in World War II. These characters have caught hell after a battle. Uh, they found themselves uh, alone, presumed dead, I would think. But they're injured and have to get across uh, a vast desert to survive at all and they're dropping off companions one by one. We're talking eight days with just a little bit of water. You can survive for probably about three and a bit. Um, So they really are on the edge, wounded, uh, very little clothing, protective clothing, that is. Uh, Okay, we're on the eighth day, and they're heading south from the area of Kufra where the battle took place, uh, towards Chad, which is run by the Free French. Jared.
1: Yeah so Moore and Winchester left Easton in a bad state and they left him with his tiny share of water and pushed south. Now Winchester too was beginning to weaken and during the ninth day he, he kept lagging far behind Moore. Now their water was gone and they knew it was just a matter of time now before they died of thirst unless someone could find help and they were surrounded by sand and rocks and stones as far as the eye could see. And it was just totally remote that they were going to get in rescued. They'd actually been reported presumed killed, missing in action. So there was no one even coming to look for them. They just had to struggle on.
0: They really are on their own. It's totally up to them. No help will come.
1: That's right. There's no one even looking for them, Graham. They just have to struggle on. Okay. Tenth day or so it came as a total shock to Moore's ears when the desert silence was broken. The sound of an aircraft engine. Now who was it going to be? Was it going to be the friend or foe? Now Moore watched it wing closer and they identified it as a French free plane. Now the pilot saw Moore and Winchester also further back, lagging behind, and he, he swung around in a, in a wide loop, and over them he dropped a small packet of food and a bottle of lemonade that he had in the plane. Now, they never found the food, and would you believe it, the cork came out of the bottle when it landed on the sand. Oh, no. Yeah, there was only one centimetre of lemonade left in the bottom. Oh, dear.
0: This is the thing of heartbreak that you see in movies, isn't it? A bottle of lemonade thrown out and the cork comes out and it spills everywhere.
1: Yeah, and the soft sand probably consumed the little parcel of food. They couldn't find it anywhere. They were so disappointed anyway. The plane left. They resumed their tramp south and Moore was striding ahead now. He had found some inner strength amongst it all, but... Winchester was lagging further and further behind, but at least now there was hope. It was hope that the French pilot would report their presence, of course. Now, rescue came from a completely different direction as back at the uh, hut that they'd left Teague, he was barely conscious after being without water for four days. Now, he was just at the point of death, but towards evening on the ninth day, he'd heard the sound of truck engines and He was totally delirious. He thought he was imagining, but he was found by the free French patrol and he was able to sort of tell them that his comrades were somewhere ahead of him. Now, the French launched an immediate search party, but darkness overtook them that first night and they lost their tracks and they returned to the hut to wait for morning, hoping to get some more information from Teague as well. But... On the 10th morning, or oh, the 11th morning really, Moore started out. He had really found his strength or something. He was determined to get out. But Winchester, he was just absolutely close to exhaustion, and, and he was lagging way behind now. Um, Moore could hardly see him. And despite the ache from his wounded foot, Moore was full of hope after that sighting of the aircraft, but he was determined to reach Ticro just to be sure. What's Tekro? Tekro is the town they're headed for. Okay. The, the French free town that they know that they'll be safe at if they get there. That was their main focus of getting to. Okay, now, that day the French set a search party off early and they found Easton, the uh, other man that Dad uh, left behind, lying on the ground 88 kilometres south of the hut Now, despite his throat wound and lack of water, he was still alive, and they took him back to Usara. A French doctor fought all day to save his life, but he died in the evening, and he was the first Scots guardsman to die in Africa, actually. Wow. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, at the um, French search party, they pushed on further, and they found Winchester. This is 105 kilometers from the hut, and he... um, was bordering on absolute delirium, but he was still able to stand when he heard the trucks approaching, interestingly enough. He stood up and then collapsed. And further 16 kilometres, the French found Corporal Moore, and he was still marching steadily up onwards and he was clear-headed and normal with his arms swinging and it was reported that he was slightly annoyed that they'd found him because he just wanted to get to Tekro. That's how determined he was. Right,
0: that sense of satisfaction. I put all this effort in let me finish it myself.
1: Yeah, that's right and he'd walked 336 kilometres from Jibel sharif with no food and just over one litre of water. He'd, he was only 130 kilometres away from Tekro. And
0: he had a bullet through the
1: foot. Uh, yeah, a bullet through the foot, and he was confident, absolutely confident, that he could have reached his destination. Now, they had a short stay at Sara.
0: So he's rescued now.
1: Yeah, that's right. And um, Winchester and Teague, they were taken south by the French to Fort Lamy and Chad territory, and... Later, they were flown back to Cairo, where they were reunited with the survivors of the of T-Patrol, the that was the original patrol, and which had withdrawn after the Italian attack at Jebel Sharif. Now, for his leadership and courage uh, and determination in sustaining three weaker men during the 10-day trek through the desert, Corporal Moore was immediately awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal, the DCM, And more amazingly, Morse went on to suffer no after-effects from his 336-kilometre trek. Wow. He went straight back into action, Graham, with the Long Range Desert Group. So he was right into it. He was a man of great endurance. You've got to give it to him. He never made a fuss about anything. But anyway, he saw quite a lot more action. But on the 22nd of December 1941... He became another casualty of the Second World War when he was hit in the left leg by a German bullet now. Whereabouts? It was in North Africa again in the desert. And uh, this time the wound was more serious and he was invalided back home actually to New Zealand. And he... He became an instructor, a Special Forces instructor, actually, before he took up farming again at matter And, you know, he lived until he was 97. He only died in 2012.
0: Mm. All right. This is an amazing feat. The story of Colonel Ronald Joseph Moore, the New Zealand Expeditionary Force, made his own escape, although even annoyed that he was rescued. But I bet his companions weren't. One did die of the ordeal, uh, but others survived. Seems as though Moore uh, suffered no grand consequences because uh, he went back in to battle almost straight away. Good heavens! What a story! Well, that's what we expect from outsiders. Good work, Jared. We'll take a break and be back very very shortly. This week, the story of Colonel Ronald Joseph Moore of the New Zealand Expeditionary Force in a battle. Uh, the Battle of Kufra. you can look that up if you like, and got shot up and left behind. And all he had to do with his companions is walk out the 340 kilometres to safety and a drink of water in the middle of the desert, oh dear, oh dear, while they're injured. He's suffered that um, shot through the foot, another bloke got one through the neck, but uh, oh boy, what a feat of endurance and most of them did survive after being rescued, just short of their destination. In Free French, administered Chad. I always like saying Chad. All right, Jared, the aftermath of this ordeal.
1: Yeah, well, Moore absolutely proved himself missing, presumed killed in action. This man was almost unkillable, Graham. He really was. And, you know, you've got to remember about Moore. He was in the prime of his life. He was born in 1915 in Te Aroha in the North Island there by Taipi. And he, he was in the prime of his life. He went to war at 25 And he was known as a really remarkable farmhand as well. Any job that was given to him, he could succeed. He used to work long hours. He was full of initiative. And there was no doubt he was made for this mission. If anyone could have got out, if it had been virtually any other man, they would all be dead, those guys. Probably, you know, and this is just a sort of caliber of people that we have. Now, there's another member of the New Zealand Expeditionary Force, too, who was also in the Long Range Desert Group. This is a special forces group. A New Zealander called Trooper, or he's later Second Lieutenant. Dennis Morton Bassett, he received the DCM too, also for leading a party of 10 on a nine-day march to Gelo. Now, this is in December 1941 after their truck was shot up and destroyed. So a very, very similar story with this guy, not quite as extreme. They had a little bit more water with them, but Moore's one just comes out as something totally extreme, it really does. And I think it really goes to show, I think, the quality, the calibre of some of the men that that went on this New Zealand expeditionary force and the terrible things that they suffered. I'll never forget my visit to Al Alamein, this Commonwealth Grave Cemetery there, just the most remarkable place, swept every day. The sand is swept every day by these caretakers there. And, you know, some graves have six men in them who were in a tank that took a full shell and yeah. blown to bits. They didn't know who the separate men were, all buried in one. I went on this trip, and I was virtually crying at the end of that to how these men finished their lives in this desert. A lot of them engineers, just people like more.
2: Yeah. Wow.
1: Um,
0: my dad couldn't watch Tobruk on TV. Freaked him out too much.
1: Ah, so there you go, just the same sort of thing, eh? You just don't realise. And these desert wars, Graham, were crazy events. It was all about the supply chain. You know, once your supply got stretched, you retreated, and then the other side, you know, it was just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, just gruelling times.
0: Yeah, and a strange type of war where there is nowhere to hide.
1: No, absolutely, and in the most shocking conditions, you know
0: yeah um the british and allied forces did have a wonderful advantage in that that amazing man and his team at bletchley park alan turing had cracked the enigma code and uh, knew what rommel was up to
1: oh exactly yeah it's a remarkable story and i say this you get a feeling from a story but Man, a feeling of incredible will to survive, I think. This guy was remarkable, you know, and he never wanted any heroics associated with him or anything. He was just a plotter. He was never going to be beat. He had that attitude, just that attitude, I am not going to die.
0: And it's amazing he didn't suffer any longer term effects from that. There are people that run marathons that never get better.
1: Yeah, that's true, yeah. And, you know, the fact that he lived to 97 years, uh, an amazingly fit man, right up into his late years, apparently. Had the stamina and had the body.
0: And that conflict in North Africa um, turned the Allies way. And there's that famous speech from Winston Churchill. It was the first win for the Allies. It was the first turn of the tide. Uh, What did Churchill say? I can't remember exactly, but something like, this is... Not the beginning of the end, but we could say it's the end of the beginning,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, good one, Graham.
0: All right, Jared Hindmarsh, thank you very, very much. And a reminder, listeners, that the archive is available, all of the Outsider Tales which Jared has done are up on the archive. On the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. And you'll, if you're listening on the podcast, a special hello. Jared, thank you very,
1: very much. Cheers, Graham.
2: I have never promised anything about blood, tears, toil, and sweat. Now, however, we have a new experience. We have victory. A, a remarkable and definite victory. A bright gleam has caught the helmets of our soldiers and warmed and cheered all our hearts. General Alexander, with his brilliant comrade and lieutenant, General Montgomery, a glorious and exciting victory in what I think should be called the Battle of Egypt. Rommel's army has been defeated. It has been routed. It has been very largely destroyed as a fighting force. Now, this is not the end. Uh, It is not even the beginning of the end but it is perhaps the end of the beginning
0: okay folks thank you so much for listening on the weekend you're a Sunday listener, never know, uh, you may not know, there is a Weekend Variety whilst well, a Saturday edition, same time, same place, 8pm to midnight. And if you are a regular listener and wondering where Grant Smithies, our music critic, has gone as we unravel albums from 1978, he's away for a bit and I'm using this opportunity to restock the Sh- Shipwreck Tales archive. Uh, We've done this with the Outsiders Archive. We're pretty convinced it is the archive is totally complete. It matches all our files, Gerard's, mine, and um, actually those are the only two. Uh, And the Outsiders Archive is complete. We want to make the Shipwreck Tales archive as complete as well. John McChrystal did such a stunning job. Uh, Shipwreck Tales are going to be replayed this is the this is the easiest get around for me that creates less the least fuss in the office uh, we'll be replaying them of a Saturday night the ones that escaped the archive that uh, fell overboard uh, in a transformation from one web format to another don't ask me the details thank you all so much for listening if you want to get in touch with the show I recommend you go to the weekend variety wireless webpage there is Every which way to get in touch with the show, to download the podcasts. Hello, if you've downloaded the podcast, they're downloadable hour by hour, uh, Saturday and Sunday evening. So all of those instructions, there. direct emails. There's a direct link to... The weekend schedule, the latest one. If you click on that tonight, um, you'll find out what's been on rather than what's going to be on. I usually put it up of a Friday, Friday afternoon when I know better than I knew on Thursday uh, what's going to be on the show on Saturday and Sunday. That's kind of how it works. The Facebook page is there as well. That's the easiest for quick messages and conversation. Thank you so much, Facebookers, for your help this weekend with songs that spell. Why on earth would a song want to spell with all R-E-S-P-E-C-T to A-R-E-T-H-A-F-R-A-N-K-L-I-N? But you get it? Why would you want to spell it? Why? I know. Van Morrison? It's not a hard name to spell, is it? Gloria? We know. We know where you're going. G-L. I think I know what's coming up next. Just stop it. That was my grievance, number 161. You can re-listen to that on the Media Stick replay on the Weekend Variety Wireless as well, with wonderful examples. (laughs) All right, I'll leave you with Overnight Talk, 0800 844 747, 0800 844 747. If you're thinking of writing a song, don't dare think of spelling anything in it.